Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Listening to Big Blend Radio with Nancy and Lisa, and author, military historian, and U.S. Army veteran Mike Guardia is joining us on today's Champagne Sunday show to talk about Army Captain Donald D. Blackburn. Mike wrote his biography. It's called Shadow Commander: The Epic Story of Donald D. Blackburn, and it is epic. I mean, this is a dude that just kept going, and I mean, he he rescued people. I mean, he just did so many things. So I encourage everyone to go get the book. Of course, you can get Shadow Commander on Amazon, all those great places, but go to Mike's website. It's MikeGuardia.com. Welcome to the show, Mike. How are you? Hey, Lisa. I'm doing very well. It's great to be on your show. Yeah, good to have you on here. Nancy's here, too, and both of us have been reading Mm -hmm. Shadow Commander, and you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to put my military history hat on, but I'm getting through it, and it's incredible. (laughs) You're a good writer. I mean, seriously, for people that aren't really entrenched in a lot of military history, you can get into this story because this is, I think what you bring to the table is reminding us all that we, even when you're looking at military history, it's not necessarily always about ammunition or procedure. These are stories of people and being heroes and courageous. Right. Yeah. Right. And by the way, thank you for your service to our country as well. We all appreciate your work and that's for sure and um, appreciate that you're telling these stories what led you to really get into the history part and then to start writing because you do like what, the Osprey books I was looking at this you, you're, you get into the ammunition and things like that and tanks and ambushes so you've got that side but you also <laughs> are writing writing you know these stories and, and keeping people informed what led you to it well uh I always knew that I wanted to write a book at some point in my life, and I've really always been fascinated by history, and I've been fascinated by, uh, you know, by stories of what um, what a lot of great men throughout history have accomplished when the chips were down and the odds were stacked against them, and uh, it was really that desire to try and get a good story out there that really motivated me to tell the story of Don Blackburn. Uh, the story of Don Blackburn itself actually grew out mm-hmm. of the uh, it actually grew out of the prequel to the book, um, mm-hmm. or I guess if you don't want to call it a prequel, it, it would be more of a companion piece. But the story of Don Blackburn grew out of a book that I wrote called American Guerrilla, uh, which tells the story of his counterpart, you know, his partner in command in the Philippines, named Russell mm-hmm. Volkman. And uh, what struck me as uh, inspiring about the uh, about the story of Russell Volkman and Don Blackburn was really just uh, how these guys were able to take the shambles of what had been left in the Philippines. You know, I mean, they were essentially abandoned by their higher commands, and really just take really just take the bull by the horns and with that dogged determination and that will to stay alive, uh, really form a coherent resistance movement against the Japanese. 
and uh, how their uh, how their initiative and their and their creativity were not punished but rewarded, and they went on to serve illustrious uh, careers in the military and leave something for future generations to have. Yeah, because it's pretty incredible. I mean, a lot of times when um, you know things go down, I mean, to actually turn around and create your own army, basically, with Blackburn's Headhunters. Tell everybody about this because I mean, this is in, in the early '40s. Um, kind of give everybody a setup of, of where he was and to be able to, you know, some people will go, okay, I'm just going to hide off in the bushes. I'm going to go, I don't know, shack up somewhere. Um, but to turn around and like, I'm going for it, you know, and to create, mm-hmm. you know, your own army is like, man, yeah, <laughs> he's, he's amazing. So what, what, tell everybody what led him to that. Okay. Well, He was posted to the Philippines in the spring of 1941, and of course the Philippines at the time, it was still a U.S. Commonwealth, and we still had a very large military presence over there. Now, uh, uh, of course, 1941, most of the world is involved in World War II at this point, except for the U.S., and uh, all of the U.S. policymakers are convinced that if a threat is going to come to the U.S. military, then by God it's going to happen in Europe before it happens anywhere else. So all of the all of the priority funding for all of our military went to all of our stateside forces and also went to Pearl Harbor, but it seemed that all of our American forces in the Philippines were pretty much forgot about. Wow. So on... On the 7th of December, 1941, mm-hmm. when the when the Japanese make their surprise attack on Pearl Harbor that same day, they also attack the American outposts in the Philippines. Now, of course, uh, it only takes about it, it really only takes a matter of weeks before the entire American Philippine contingent is overrun, and that's when you have General MacArthur make his famous uh, speech, you know, saying "I shall return," and he he jumps on a speedboat to Australia. But for all of the men that were left behind who were ultimately forced to surrender and many of whom made their way into the Bataan Death March, you had a handful of men like like Don Blackburn and Russell Polkman who absolutely refused to give up. They said, uh, you know, I know what the Japanese are capable of doing. You know, I've seen the atrocities that they've committed against uh, against the people in Manchuria and against and all of the other people that they've conquered so far my chances of survival are actually better on the outside than if I were to go inside a Japanese POW camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they just barely, barely I- I escaped the Japanese onslaught, and here you had, uh, within a matter of hours of the American surrender, uh, the Japanese were overrunning their camp, and uh, th- they were just minutes away from actually being captured by the Japanese when they slid under when they slid out under the cover of darkness. Good mm. You know, when you think about being in, wow. in a prison, prison of war camp. I mean, mm-hmm. that's. I mean, it's just the, the yeah. POW camps. It, it's. You know, I. It, you go through so much. There's tortures. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lack of food. Everybody, right. you know, being shoved in places together. I mean, it's such a. Yeah, you want to be on the outside no matter what. You know, you do not want to be in there. But, um, you know, he also helped rescue people right out of a POW camp. Indeed, he did. Um, as a matter of fact, when uh, he when he traveled to the uh, when he traveled to the mountains of North Luzon, and he was organizing some regiments in there, um, there were quite a few of his guerrillas who rescued uh, 
who rescued both American and Filipino uh, POWs in the Philippines. And uh, if you uh, if you fast forward, if you uh, fast forward about 30 years later or so, when he organized the Sante prison raid, um, that was the largest special forces operation of the uh, of the Vietnam War. Uh, now that prison raid as it was it didn't actually uncover any POWs because they had all been moved to another camp um but the tertiary effects of that raid were beyond incredible because as a result of the Sante raid the North Vietnamese knew that their hometown was no longer um impervious to American military action and several returning POWs from Vietnam said that after the Sante prison raid their lives and their treatment as POWs actually got better Hmm. So how do you go, you know, from basically becoming, you know, I'm going to, you know, have my own army, I'm going to do this, keep going. And I know that he also ended up working in the special forces. So, I mean, there's that line of crossing over, do you go for it or are you going to get in trouble? Or is that line there? I mean, because you always think about, you know, how much leeway do you have to be able to just now go out, like even create his headhunters or his own tribe basically going out there um, to, to, you know, do you think that he ever thought that, you know, I could get in trouble for this? And do you think he even cared that way? He was really just keeping his eye on what the missions were all about. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, I, uh, I am almost positive that he, he had that dialogue with himself at some point. And uh, as, as far as that line actually being there, it um, it is, but it isn't. And really, a lot depends on who it is you work for, and it also depends on what organization you're with. Uh, really, what it boils down to is a gamble, you know, because you will be in some organizations where if the chips are down, your creativity and your initiative and your thinking outside of the box is rewarded. And then in another organization, or even within the same organization, if you work in a different department, uh, you'll have a completely different culture there who says, by God, you are going to toe the line. You are going to meet the mm-hmm. metrics of everything this organization does and every single order that comes down. And you know, if you just deviate even slightly from the specific pre- uh, prescribed set of instructions that you were given, then essentially e- your name is mud. Uh, so I know that that had to have been going on in his mind. Um, I don't think that mm-hmm. that was really a factor in his decision-making, though, because he said, you know, I would rather evade capture and I would rather disobey the order to surrender than to end up dead inside of a POW camp, you know, than to end up tortured, you know, than to end yeah. up decapitated. And if the Army wants to say that I'm in trouble for continuing on the fight and continuing to dispose of enemy personnel, well, then, you know, that's, I guess, the price I pay. And if mm-hmm. I have to fight the bureaucracy on it, then I'll do it. Now, in Blackburn's case, and especially in Volkman's case, uh, you had a um, – you had a situation where their creativity was rewarded in that matter, and I, I think, I think it was PR that influenced the army brass not to prosecute them more than anything. Because here, if oh. you actually took this before any type of military tribunal, and you said, "Okay, I'm going to, uh, I am going to turn the screws to these guys because they did not surrender and they continued to fight against the enemy, and look, they killed." 
so many yeah. more of the enemy than if they had surrendered and they made it easier for us to come back and then retake the Philippine Islands, you would have uh, a public outcry saying, oh, my God, are you guys stupid? Why are you trashing mm. these guys? Because they were doing their job. They were being professional soldiers. They didn't get out of Dodge when the chips were down. You know, that's got to be a horrible position to be in if you are given orders that for some reason um, mm-hmm. you disagree with. And and because you're on the ground and you're right in it, as opposed to maybe somebody else who's somewhere else and is just picking up a phone and saying, do this, and you right. know it's wrong, You now you're in this moral dilemma and your career dilemma, but you but basically you're talking about your own life and death and the people around you. I mean, sometimes you really don't have that much of a decision to make because it's like, okay, I'm going to worry about what they, if they court-martial me later, but right Mm -hmm. now I'm going to go save my own life. It's better to just do it and ask for forgiveness (laughs) later. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the channel of command, um, how how does that really work? I mean, do the people giving the orders have as much, information or more information than the people right there mm. you know it's kind of hit and miss yeah you got to think back then too you know the 40s oh, 40 through the 60s i mean it's like it, it was a different war i mean look yeah. at it, america's war history too go from world war one into world mm. war two was two mm. different kind of games well and vietnam was totally different. i mean it, yeah and, and you know, some people call one part of it, like the Korean War, oh, it's a skirmish, yeah. and it was a war. I mean, it really was. Yeah. So at the end of the day, there was, like, different things. Do you think we were really prepared, like, as, as in military? Did we expect what was, what was going on to happen? Well, um, in, in terms of both Korea and Vietnam, I'd say no. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's 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 a uh, sad fact of history that uh, mm. we don't really tend to internalize the lessons that we should, especially when especially when we're sending our troops overseas to fight. You know, mm. um, I, there was I can tell you in at least the case of Korea that there was a certain naivety going into it. I mean, you had several at the higher echelons who thought that the North Koreans would quit the field as soon as they figured Mm -hmm. out that they were fighting Americans, because here we were in 1950, we were five years out of winning the biggest war that we had ever fought. And, you know, here, here we were the Americans, you know, we had just kicked the stuffing out of the, uh, out of the Japanese Mm -hmm. and the Germans. Mm -hmm. So who in God's name were the North Koreans to tussle with America's war machine. But you know, I think the biggest mistake that we made going into that was thinking that the rest of the world thinks the same way we do, and that somehow, <laughs> you know, and and yeah. and somehow a victory that we had five years earlier would dissuade a new enemy from fighting mm-hmm. us, and we paid that's a terrible a, that's price. A, that's a yeah. big, that's it, a big life lesson of always is. thinking that people are in the same thought process or. You know that they are exactly the same. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. it's amazing because when you're in the military and you and you get moved around and you are now are immersed in different cultures, you you start to see how you know they not were, everybody thinks the same way Americans think. We went from California and lived in Kenya, then we went mm-hmm. from to England, then we went from England to South Africa, and wow. let me tell you, and then, then Mexico, and then we went and lived in Mexico, and each time, even though we knew, we kept saying it's going to be different, we were still shocked at mm-hmm. the differences, but also the the 
qualities or, or goals that were the same, you know. But mm-hmm. I can see where if you are at the top and you're sitting behind a desk um, and you're not on the ground and you haven't been to the country that your troops are in, mm-hmm. I don't even... I don't even for one second see how you can even issue an order, to be honest. I mean, I can I can remember sitting in, in different parts of Africa and reading in the newspaper, well, the American government's doing this. I'm like, oh, brother, like, you know what you're doing. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> when they pulled sanctions against South Africa, mm-hmm. the U.S. government thought, okay, that's gonna, that'll fix apartheid. It didn't do anything but get a lot of Africans fired. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like you don't know. And I think there was a few politicians who came down for two weeks, flew back, and decided this is how they're going to handle it. And for the for us that were living there, we're like, man, you didn't learn nothing. Right. So how you know how is it when you're in combat and the uppers are giving the orders? Do they know what they're doing or not? Or you just got to trust in that? Well, oh, wow, dude. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. You uh uh you really need to make sure that the higher-ups are as well informed as possible. You really have to paint the picture for them. Um mm. now, of course, the all of the decision making that ultimately lies with them, but mm-hmm. uh the onus is really on those who are closest to the action to accurately paint a picture of what's going on and mm-hmm. also aside from painting that picture try and have at least one or two one one or two r- recommendations in the queue to actually give to mm. those who make the decisions you know because mm. all of the information you know especially in today's world of information overload it it's um mm-hmm. it's increasingly possible for a lot of the decision makers to get overwhelmed and and mm. also for a lot of things to be lost in translation. So if you were to distill down all of the important bits of the information to the hires and also give them one or two proposed solutions, then that makes the decision-making process a lot easier for them. Now, of course, of course, the door swings both ways because when you have someone who's in that higher position, the onus is on them to listen to the people who are on the ground, the people who have the real-time assessment mm. of the situation. And uh, it, it's it sounds great in theory, but what I've seen a lot of uh, what I I've seen a lot of throughout history, and even in my own experiences in the military, that uh, you know um, a lot of times you have some what what I call a positional bias. It's you know it's this person who sits almost in an ivory tower who says, well, because I'm in this position, I automatically know better than you, and I'm automatically the smartest person in the room, so. Thank you for all the information that you've given me. I'm still going to do it my way. Now, yeah, sometimes, I know. And yeah. back in the days where they were on that white stallion in front of the troops, riding out the first man to go down, uh-huh. that might have worked. But it's not like that. Yeah. These guys don't even get. They're not. They're so far away from combat. But okay, I think if you make the decision, you should be the first one out. Yeah. But you can't. But you, that's probably but you, not. You can't happen. do that to Donald Blackburn. <laughs> you can't. You, you can't mess with him. They need to like have. A, can't we take your book and make it into a series, like a, a TV series, not just a movie? I mean, a series. So because he did so much. I mean, when you think about it, he's got lessons in there. He's got like life lessons for people. I think, and I think even his story. 
would help us understand some more about how the military works, how combat works, and uh-huh. also about, you know, getting around things and keeping your eye on your goal. You know what I mean? He he really has that story of doing it. And, I mean, it's he's like a fearless dude, but, I mean, fear is there. It's always there. But um, don't you think it would be cool to do it like a series, like, an, you know, how they – like PBS series mm-hmm. or something like that? We could get Ken Burns. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. I would uh... – I would absolutely love to see it turned into a miniseries. You know, I mean, if uh, um, either as a PBS series with Ken Burns attached or even as an HBO miniseries, you know, like they did with John mm-hmm. Adams and Band of Brothers. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. John well, Adams style, yeah. Yeah, well, if there are any production studios out in the audience today, I mean, I'm, by all means, you know, <laughs> you can talk to the publisher and you can option the movie rights there. <laughs> Come on. So, so I mean, writing this, I know this comes from, in, in your book, American Gorilla, The Forgotten Heroics of Russell W. Volkman. Um, so they're, they were in, you know, together in, in war, uh-huh. um, in combat. But you also wrote about Hal Moore, a soldier once and always, another yeah. hero. Um, am I true in that you're writing another book regarding Hal Moore? Yes, indeed. Uh, as a matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, I... Uh, I completed the first draft of Hal Moore on leadership, and uh, whereas Hal Moore's soldier once and always focused primarily on his life and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, the uh, chronology of his career, uh, Hal Moore on leadership, as the name implies, uh, is really an in-depth look at his leadership principles and, uh, you know, all of the uh, tips and all of the tactics and techniques that he used to achieve success both on and off the battlefield. And uh, as I said, I just finished the first draft of that a few weeks ago, and we're hoping to have that released on Memorial Day of this year. Oh, nice. Excellent, cool. excellent. Because that's the uh-huh. thing that I was saying at the beginning, you, you really, you're easy to read, and um, I think that's an important thing for those who don't normally pick up a military history kind of book. You know, Nancy and I love mm-hmm. historical fiction, um, mm-hmm. but you have a way to tell a story and get it to people. Did you do, I mean, have you always written? Is this something that, you know, you were born with? Because I know you also write children's books, too. So, yes. I mean, this is, I mean, <laughs> you're doing a little bit of everything here, and it's amazing, but I think that's what makes you well-rounded in that, um, it, this, these are stories that everyone can connect with and should connect with. But um, is this something you've been doing all your life? Well, uh, I actually think I've been writing for about as long as I can remember. I, I started off doing short stories, and uh, then as I got a little bit older, I started doing some book reviews. And, uh, and so I think the writing bug was always there. And, uh, of course, history and English were always my favorite subjects in school. And uh, I, I really, I really think I just kept that momentum going until I was about 23, which was when I started wrapping up the, uh, started wrapping up the first draft of American Gorilla. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I know you've done a lot of different writing, and then you also do seminars too. You go and do speaking engagements, and it's really on. It goes with the Halmore lessons and leadership. Um, when you're doing that, even with what you've written now, also about uh, Blackburn. Are these really these stories you're taking from these P 
people there. I mean, their stories need to be told, but taking this and, and teaching it to people of, of life skills, not necessarily just military, but life skills. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's incredible, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, uh, especially for me to, to, to be able to read all these stories and, uh, and not only see what their impact on history was, but you know, also to uh, you know, also to glean what wh- what important life lessons are out there, and how other people in any other setting or any other organization can benefit from that. Hmm. It's interesting to me because um, I know um, I have so many friends that ended up going to Vietnam. When they returned, um, they wouldn't talk about it at all. It, they were just so. They were just so closed-mouthed about what mm-hmm. happened over there that, you know, I always came away with the feeling that um, the military is not telling, you know. So then when you get a book like yours and, and here's these stories, you know, um, I just always made that assumption, of course, which is wrong to make, but that when you're in the military, whatever happens stays in the military, nobody's talking, and you you don't have a way of knowing the stories. You know, because I just remember that whole time when everybody came back and nobody would, no matter what, they just don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Yeah. I think it was different World War II, though. Well, Everybody think, was yippee. But, but even now, even now, when we um, were based in uh, 29 Palms, I feel like there's a there's a disconnect between what's going on in the civilian world and and the military side of things, where there's a there's a disconnect between us all. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be just oh okay, it's Memorial Day, so everybody yeah is, you know say thank you and 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 remember those who have passed and fought as well and um, Veterans Day. You know, it, it should be something that we connect with all the time. Do you think that, uh, you know, through your books, you're helping that to kind of bridge that gap, or do you think there is that gap? Well, I uh, I think there is that gap for a lot of people, and I think mm-hmm. the gap starts, or I really think it starts to be bridged with time. You know, um, mm-hmm. for, for some of the veterans that I've met, and even for some that I've served with, uh, the gap is a lot shorter. And they are eager to tell their stories because telling the stories for them is actually therapeutic. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, then you also have some, um, and I, I think this is a trend that's stronger with some of the previous wars, especially in Vietnam, you know, because there was a lot of stigma surrounding the conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But for others, I think that uh, I think that the bridge is really healed by two things. It's, uh, uh, it, excuse me, I think the gap is really healed by two things. Uh, one is time, and uh, the other is really finding uh, a person that can gain that veteran's trust and uh, can get them to talk mm-hmm. about it in a way that's helpful to them. You know, uh, I, I think mm-hmm. that that really was the case with Don Blackburn because uh, there was a lot that went over there and uh, it, and a lot of it was hard for him to process, especially because nothing in his, in, in his conventional officer training had prepared him for that. So I think in his case, it took a while for him to actually be able to get to a point where he's comfortable enough to talk about it. And uh, I was fortunate enough to catch him in the twilight of his life to where, you know, mm-hmm. he and his family were incredibly helpful in actually wanting to get his story out there and wanting these future generations to learn about what he did and what his impact was. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. awesome. I mean, to be able to, to capture that and... And then again, keep sharing it out there, you know, through writing, and then even doing uh-huh. public speaking. And I think that's important that people get that. I think it, it's just. I think it's when it comes to war, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, and it's something that, you know, if we don't keep looking at it, we're not going to get better in making peace. You know, right. and we have to understand these stories and understand it's not something like whenever there's an issue in the world, it seems that. There's a lot of us we get riled up. It could be protests. It could be, you know, not protests. It could be all, you know, call your senator. I mean, look at what's going on in the world now and, and in our country. You know, there's, you know, but you've got to look at a lot of times people get this point, oh, this is so terrible. I'm not looking anymore. I'm not going to look at what's going on in the Middle East. I'm not going to look at this over here because I don't like to see this. Whereas when you're in combat or you're in an area that you are, I mean, there's people in in a daily combat just because of an area they live in. So I think Mm -hmm. this is where these stories, you know, there are places, there are kids, you know, living in ghettos that are Mm -hmm. in a daily war zone, you know. Um, So there's, I always take it, if if we don't look at it and make changes, we're always going to stay in that place. And and so many people want to turn their heads, which I can understand. But if we keep turning our heads and not connecting, we're not going to get any further ahead and towards peace, you know, world peace, peace on earth, you know. Um, So I think that's what's so important is to somehow get people to hear these stories. So I think that's another thing, doing these books that you're doing. I mean, you're telling people you're not writing the fiction. It's not fiction. (laughs) This is people's real stories. Your children's Mm -hmm. books, I mean, you've got snow in Hawaii and it did snow. Yes, it does at the top of the mountain, mm-hmm. so that's cool. <laughs> you know, so I think that's something where um, when people want to read stories and I think they want to watch movies and everything, and it's a way for people to understand and not turn their head away, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. You know, it's almost like um, a different culture, mm-hmm. the military and the non-military in the same country. It's... it's um, if you see a movie or read a book, then you can have a, a window into that culture that maybe you would normally not have. 
and mm-hmm. and I can't think of a better way of crossing over and mm-hmm. relating to each other mm-hmm. in a better way. Right. When we lived in Twenty Nine Palms, uh, there's a military base there, and um, mm-hmm. it was really rare that we communicated with people in the military. No, think about it, because yeah, two separate cities it, almost. Yeah, it was like a whole different culture. Same as Oceanside, mm-hmm. with, you, you know, know. And and uh, I suppose it has to be that way. But it might be better if, if it was a little more integrative, mm-hmm. maybe. I don't know. It, it, yeah. it does. I think you're right about time. Um, what you, you managed to meet, you know, Blackburn's family, Donald Blackburn's family, and, and you know, and, and catch him in his twilight years, like you're saying. But when you look at the research you've done with all your books, are you going into, like, military libraries? Are you going in and getting actual records, war records, or how are you piecing this together? And even, you know, obviously meeting uh, Mr. Blackburn, that's incredible because then you get a a sense of his personality. How are you able to, with Hal Moore and, uh, you know, going back and recreating everyone's stories, get a semblance of who they are and what they actually went through? Well, I do a little bit of everything. Uh, For a lot of the projects that I've worked on, uh, the first stop for me has been the National Archives in D.C., and when, when you really think about it, that's kind of a mecca for historians uh, because they have so many archive government documents there. I mean, if you were to put all of their collections and you were to stack them side by side, they would go around the entire circumference of the earth about 23 times. I mean, that is how much information they have there. Uh, so that, uh, for me, in many of the projects that I've worked on, that's been my first stopping point because I can find some pretty detailed records uh, having to do with uh, some uh, topics that a lot of people would consider incredibly obscure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also some research universities out there that have their own special collections that uh, are, are are specifically relating to a- anything that you wouldn't want to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I went to Stanford when I was doing my research on the Battle of 73 Easting because they have a special collection out there that uh, houses a bunch of interviews, you know, from the veterans of that battle. And uh, aside from that, aside from that, you also have, uh, you also have the, um, each branch of the armed forces uh, has its own historical system, and they also have a system of museums uh, where several um, archivists can help you. Uh, but the most fruitful thing for me has always been to uh, has always been to find the veterans themselves, and if mm. a particular veteran is not living, then try to get a hold of their next of kin, uh, because uh, that really uncovers probably the greatest wealth of information I've ever found. Uh, you have people, you know, who have photographs that you really can't find anywhere else. You know, you have diaries that have. Uh, that have long since been buried and uh you know if you were if you're able to talk to the veteran himself you know uh hearing it directly from the horse's mouth it it, uh Mm -hmm. adds a richness to it that i don't think you could get anywhere else Mm. yeah Yeah. for sure We've, we've interviewed a number of veterans and i remember we did a show in julian california up in the mountains and it um the american legion and and we you know we used to live out there and you know we we know a lot of people and they set us up, and they, I'm not kidding. They they created a bomb shelter for that us to do so our radio funny. show out of, just so that it technically would all work. We had our own special room with a fan and a little tiny lamp. And we all felt like mm-hmm. we were in a bomb shelter. Yeah, and I can say that because we lived in places where this, you know, right. we know about right. landmines and, and limpet mines and all that, that kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, yeah. it was just it was it, everybody came together, and 
veterans came in. Um, it was just, it was really one of those shows where you're just, you're trying so hard, you're, don't you dare cry, you know, <laughs> show. Right. And, you know, we the stories that came out um, and having veterans all sit together, some who do not have all their body parts anymore, unfortunately, and mm-hmm. just sitting there talking about even coming back into you know, civilian life um, after serving and, and being at war. And we're talking uh, World War II, Vietnam, and then the recent wars now. And it was amazing to see, it, this is a theme of today's show, multi-generational. Yeah. Um, everyone connect at all these different ages and connect over the fact that they went out and served. And no matter where it was, there was this connectivity and I just I remember sitting in that one room doing this interview and a gentleman had come in in his wheelchair and and all ages there were three or four men mm-hmm. sitting there were ended up holding hands and it and I'm going oh my god I'm going to die I can't do this I'm going to cry right here this is bad but here mm-hmm. don't you dare you know you can't and they were just there was this it was I don't I can never explain there how was, there was a, a calmness a calmness of and support. And, and and think about what was going on outside that room. Yeah. There was a whole bunch of people, and I think the community for um, the community that normally wouldn't be at the Legion was yeah. was able to hear. And I think it was like a new perspective on their mm-hmm. neighbors and that they hadn't really. Because there again, it's Legion is kind of separated. A lot of times it's a party place. Yeah, but but it's still like this is for us and that's for you over there kind of separation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just seemed um, there were bands later that played outside. It was kind of a a glimpse into each other's worlds and thoughts. But there were stories Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. I just was like, oh, my gosh, we're never going to hear this again. Yeah. Like I'm so glad we recorded it because, you know, that some, you know, the, People don't live forever, unfortunately, and um, it was just that those stories. I mean, what you're doing, I think, is is phenomenal. Do you, do you see um, new people that you want to interview, or are you finding a lot of this from going in the archives, finding the certain people, and then finding their stories, or do you see more coming in your future? Uh, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, I got quite a few projects in the hopper right now, and uh, you know, I've uh, I have have had a few chance encounters um, with mm-hmm. some incredibly remarkable veterans, and you know, I mean, I'm I am currently doing the legwork to get a lot of their stories on paper, and a lot of times it uh, so happens to be that if I'm in the middle of working on one particular project, then 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 the subject matter of that project, a person I interview mm-hmm. says, well, hey, after you're done with this, you might want to consider writing about this because I have information on this particular subject that hasn't been covered before. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. And, you know, that will cascade into an entirely new project idea for me. Wow. Cool. 
And it doesn't hurt that you understand what you're doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I couldn't do what you're doing <laughs> because I don't understand all of it. But, um, I, again, you, you teach through through your work, so really appreciate your work on everything. And Now, do you oh, listen you. to music? Do you have anything like that you do when you're writing? I mean, are you a night owl? Like we want to, we want to know the scandal part now. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah. uh, actually, I write each one of my books longhand with pen and paper before I type it out, wow. and uh, I, I I really can't explain to you why, but for some reason that actually helps me engage the brain better. Um, if you were to just put me in front of a computer screen and just have me start typing out a book from scratch. Uh, I would probably be staring at the screen for a few hours before something pops in my head. But, I mean, there's something about the manual Hmm. process of writing that really just helps me engage and really helps my ideas flow. Uh, So, I mean, I'll have like about two – I'll have about two entire notebooks, you know, just filled with handwritten Hmm. manuscript. And then once I have that, I'll transfer it over to a computer. And and, uh, that's actually how I do my copy editing process. And it, 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 it's weird because you wouldn't think that you would write a book quicker that way, but in my case, it actually works. So wow. I don't know. No, I, I get it. I get, cause I, it's I like do, making a list. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have to handwrite everything. I have pages and piles, and <laughs> and it doesn't make sense to anybody. But to me, I, I don't know if it comes from songwriting and, and putting mm-hmm. it in that mind, and then you can – there's something about a computer that – is detached. I feel like you're detached. Mm-hmm. So like as a mm-hmm. songwriter and a singer, I always took my shoes off because I could feel the ground. For some reason, that to me is cool. Mm-hmm. Either that or I have to wear boots. So but, I could wear combat boots and be good at that. But, you know, <laughs> but there's, this, there's this connection. And I think when you put pen to paper, like you are one with it. I can't even, there is a brain connection well, I think it's, it's a little more mm-hmm. personal. Mm-hmm. You know, and just look at social media. People are willing to say things that, that normally if they were taking pen in hand and using paper or talking mm-hmm. directly, I mean, right in front of the person, they would never say the things they're saying, and they wouldn't say them the way they're mm-hmm. saying. But it's the the fact that you can hide behind the computer screen, that impersonality, that impersonal part, mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, I mean, I, I know everybody loves social media, but people might want to be nice, you know, but I think because you can hide behind the screen. Somehow when you're doing a pen and paper, mm-hmm. I don't think you mail the nasty letter like you do just sitting on social media and typing. So mm-hmm. there's there's a lack of person personal yeah. investment or, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, and maybe that will change over the years when, you know, pen and paper go out the window and that's all you and have. And we all walk around with one big thumb yeah, and one big these, forefinger. Yeah, well, you guys on phones, man, I can't even go there. Don't want to. <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting that you're doing this on the pen and paper, but when you're doing the research of like the dates and the kind of ammunition and the actual, you know, that kind of technical side, because you've got to have the technical side in there. Mm-hmm. Are you doing research? I mean, you're going to the libraries and everything, but do you ever look online and say, no, you guys have got it wrong? <laughs> like, Because I think so many times, even especially as in, in the world of articles being put up on the Internet, a lot of them get it wrong. We do a lot of travel to national mm-hmm. park sites and um, we travel for three years nonstop and going to the national park units and seeing what really happened, seeing the places, yeah. getting the actual information there versus what you'll read online. Um, a, I'm going to say it's a 50-50 yeah. chance of um, what you're reading online is wrong. Yeah. So do you find that with your research, and I'm talking more on the history side because uh, we do a lot of historical parks and 
I mean, you go to, like, there's battlefields and all kinds of military history in, in our national park system. But do you see that kind of thing being wrong on the Internet or, or no? Right. I have come up. I have come across that from time to time. You know, uh, I'll, I'll I'll see an article that you know says one thing, but my, my own personal experiences say something entirely different. Mm. Yeah. yeah, just exactly. Yeah, do your own thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah do it. That's, you know, when you go into a historic park, a national park, you know, where you can actually you can um, relate better because you see yeah. things that mm-hmm. you wouldn't normally see. And mm-hmm. if you take the time to read and really try to put yourself in the position uh-huh. of, of mm-hmm. you know, one, what was the park where they were showing us that lady's dress and the shoes? And the shoes were so small, and we're looking at our feet going, no way. No, I you know. know. How tiny were yeah. people back then? What the heck was going on? Yeah. You know, our feet are ten times bigger than what's in museums, you know, and it's like try to imagine yourself in the dress or the shoes or the the uniform and or, we have to go to boot camp or for using that. or <laughs> using these guns that that are, you know, um so it Not you'd have to fill it with the powder and push powder the thingy and, and yeah, yeah mm-hmm. you know, think about it. Yeah. Would would you ever consider doing those kinds of military history stories like from way back when, like, you know, the Civil War and, and you know, things like the Apache Wars that happened here? Would you ever consider that or are you sticking more to World War Two and then younger from that? Oh, sure. I, I, I would love mm-hmm. to do uh, some of the earlier stories in American history. Uh as a matter of fact, it's funny you should mention it because um, one of the ideas that I'm kicking around uh, is, is actually a survey text on on uh, all the different instances of guerrilla warfare I- I- in the Civil War, you know, particularly Confederate guerrillas. And, uh, wow, yeah. 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 I mean, hmm. because, I mean, you had the likes of Bloody Bill Anderson, you know, who was carrying on a guerrilla war against Union soldiers. And... Um, as a matter of fact, one of the very first papers that I presented at a military history conference was uh, of the Indian Wars of the American West and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. how how throughout much of the uh, 1870s through the 1890s, you really had the U.S. Army become a uh, constabulary uh, trying to uh, police up all the Indians in the American West. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. A lot of places that we've been to, I mean, there are all these forts. Uh-huh. Um, we were there, you know, and and a lot of them came from somebody getting drunk and going rogue and had like the Pyramid Lake War. Oh up in yeah, Nevada, that right? whole war was, was caused was, by two boys, two guys, brothers. Yeah, they got drunk and, and they they um, kidnapped and raped some Indian women. Yeah, and then next thing you know, here we are with a little bit of a skirmish up there, and then they ended a up little building, bit. Yeah. Not a little, mm. but then they mm. built this fort, and then it ended up being for the Pony Express and everything. But I mean, this fort. Then there was never a battle there, but it was just mm. there to kind of say, here, we're, we're here to watch you. But it wasn't the Indians that did anything at that point. Yeah. So there mm-hmm. was all these, I mean, the West is crazy with that, and, and I'm sure the East, too. We haven't done much on the East on that. Um, but out here, I mean, it, it's, it, and I think Texas, where you are, you're in the state of Texas. I mean, you've got some amazing history out there. I mean, that you. Oh, it, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, you've and got with Alamo and mm. Yeah. And well, and then you've also got, you know, the Indian Wars and then the Mexican American War. I mean, it, it's just like it goes on and on. Texas has got a lot. And 
going through some of the northern areas that we went up to. Um, I can't remember. I just remember going through, and there was just one historical marker after the other, and we were coming from Louisiana down. It was above Houston, a few hours north of Houston, and we mm. came across, and there was just I don't, like so many historical markers. I just wanted to get out of the car, and we couldn't. We, had, we were on our way to Arizona, and we had to get move, you know. And I wanted to get out because I'm like, oh my gosh, I know something happened here. I know I've read about it. I want out. I want out of the car. There was so much history, you know. So I can't wait to explore to explore your state and learn some more. But yeah, that's cool to know that you're going to look at doing some other ones in guerrilla warfare. I mean, would they ever think that you know, in in a in a weird way that Donald Blackburn what I mean, he he is he is a, he it is guerrilla warfare what he did because he yeah. went off on his own and did his thing. But I just you don't look at it that way. Well, if you know if your commanders bail on you or you're not getting um, any yeah. support, what are you supposed to do? I mean, you you know do it your own way. Mm-hmm. I guess you know what it's a heck of a position to find yourself in. But I think during any kind of combat, that's a possibility. Mhm. Yeah. Yikes! 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 Well, you know, I was going to say, Mike, you are you ready for a champagne toast? I mean, we talk a lot about war, but we do like to have <laughs> champagne. Are you ready? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. So, what are you toasting to? Okay. Well, uh, I will. I will toast to uh, everyone's longevity. Uh, well, we'll toast to all of your listeners out there, and I will toast to the New England Patriots and, you know, ho- hope that they come <laughs> away with a Super Bowl win. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Yeah, the Super Bowl. Yep. He's, cool. <laughs> he wants his wins. Are you guys partying over in Texas today? Well, we're keeping things kind of mild. I'm still disappointed the Cowboys didn't make it to the bowl, but oh well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh well. Hey, there it is, you know. Hey, but that's why we get to have this every year so that, you know, Absolutely. you never know what can happen and can keep it going. Thank you, number one, again, for your service. But Absolutely. Thank you for telling these stories and capturing oh, it's my stories, pleasure. especially going out and, and talking to people one-on-one. I think it's, an, it's, it's important. It's so important. And um, appreciate your, your writing for sure. Um, so keep us posted on all your new things happening, okay? You're going to have to Absolutely. come on one of our military roundtable ta- discussions with our other historians. Cause okay. That would be, that would be fun, yeah. yeah. We have um, Glenn Burroughs who comes on our show. He's over in England, and he connects England um, to America through World War II because there's a lot of World War II airfields over there that are American. So he's mm-hmm. always tracing people's families back to England and back and forth and all kinds of cool stuff. So it would be cool to do that. We do um, once in a while have a World War II show. We have, we have a lot of history stuff that we do. Uh, so, yeah, keep us posted on, on all your new projects. Uh, uh, all right, Lisa can do. All right, thanks. Listen, have fun at your Super Bowl party. And yeah. uh, everyone, again, uh, the book is Shadow Commander, the epic story of Donald D. Blackburn. Go and get it. Uh, really, Mike Gordia is the name. You could go to his website, MikeGordia.com. That's G-U-A-R-D-I-A, MikeGordia.com. It's also on Amazon, all those great online stores. Um, and as we were talking, is he's got a lot of other books under his belt as well, even children's books. So go to his website, connect with him there. He's got a great blog. He's also on Twitter and Facebook as well. Thanks so much, Mike. You take care. All right, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me on your show. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. 